Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Tierney curls it. And with that Chris Tierney free kick goal, the Revolution picked up their first three points of the season. That call was Brad Feldman, the voice of the Revolution on NBC Sports, courtesy of Kraft Sports Productions. Um, We were here last week on Revolution Recap discussing the Revolution's disappointing season-opening loss. This week, the same team is back. Brian O'Connell joining me, as well as Greg Johnstone, and I'm Sean Donahue. Um, Revolution getting a much-needed three points early on in the season against a Colorado Rapids team that I don't think the expectations are too high for this year. Uh, But it took the last kick of the game for the Revolution to get that win. Chris Tierney, who was forced to come on when Gabriel Somi had a 16th-minute injury, scored that free kick. Um, I don't know how much of Tierney we're going to be seeing this season, but that that ended up being quite fortuitous that he was on the field for that uh, to get that goal and making his debut and, and, and scoring that strike to get the Revolution three points. Um, big three points for the Revolution, maybe not the prettiest game, uh, but I want to get the takeaways of, of Brian and Greg. Brian, let's start with you. Yeah, I think going touching upon uh, Chris Tierney, I think, like you'd mentioned, uh, you know, if, if everything went according to plan in that game, Chris Tierney probably doesn't even see the field. So I think the biggest takeaway for me was the fact that, you know, you really do have to find somebody else on, you You need to find somebody else to take those, uh, you know, ga- games on the line kind of free kicks and have confidence in, in the kind of player to be able to do that. And really the only player that they have right now who you can legitimately say that about is Chris Tierney because, you know, he's he's the guy that's always kind of proven himself on those set pieces. And I think and a lot of times the reason why he's on the field is because of the fact that he can do that. Um, and I think that, you know, yesterday's game was kind of like, uh, it was kind of a, a revelation of the fact that, you know, well, what do they do? Like, how do you find your next kind of set piece specialist that can make those kinds of, that can make those kinds of shots, make those kinds of kicks? Because, you know, honestly, you know, like like I mentioned, if if he's on the field and if he's going to be a reduced or reserve role this year, you really need to have somebody that can make those kinds of kicks and can make those kinds of shots um, and take those and be and have confidence in players taking those those opportunities when the game is in line like it was yesterday. Well, as you saw in the game, uh, Fagundes was the other guy lined up next to Tierney. Is is he going to be the the long term solution there, or do you, do you think they need you know somebody other than than Diego to, to step up as well? You know, honestly, I, I I honestly thought all along it was going to be Callum Rowe at one point because for a while he was also taking them too when Tierney was uh, when Tierney was was either hurt or whether he was on the bench like it was him. I remember there was kind of like a kind of a not even rotation between him, Lee, and uh, Diego as of late. Um, but I do remember you know Callum Rowe taking some of the corner kicks and a couple of the you know kind of at distance thirty yard free kicks um, when Tierney was on the field last year. So I've always thought it was going to be Kellen. Um, 
but it doesn't really look like that at this point because now that we're seeing you know situations where you know it's Diego and uh, Diego and Tierney over the ball, so you know it'd be nice to see Diego be able to take on that kind of role because you know I remember seeing him do it in academy action like he was their primary set piece specialist. Um, and you'd like to see him kind of grow into that role, but you know if it's not going to be Diego, I'd like to see uh, Callum Rowe take over and actually you know maybe. Uh, take Take his game to another level by by really excelling at those opportunities. Yeah, no, that was absolutely a, a, a key point this season is figuring out who can take those free kicks. Um, with with Tierney seeing the field less and less, presumably as as Somi seems to have the spot. Uh, we don't know the extent of his injury that he picked up yet, but it's it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, Rowe is a guy that's capable of it at times. Um, Fagunda is another guy that we've seen in the past, so that, that'll be an interesting thing to see as it progresses as the season goes on. Uh, Greg, how about you? What, what were your takeaways from this game? My big takeaway from this game is that me proclaiming Matt Turner as a future MLS all-star last week doesn't seem that ridiculous anymore. Uh, he's, he played pretty well yesterday. I think the revolution, um, you know, I, I think we were really questioning whether or not he could handle the starting gig. And we were wondering if we were actually going forward with Matt Turner as the starting goalkeeper. And, um, I think he played uh, wonderful yesterday. Uh, I think he's kind of proven that uh, he deserves to, you know, have the, the starting job in New England. And I, I think, um, in no disrespect to Cody Cropper, I think Cody is pretty good too. But we had our, our doubts about him. I think, um, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see Matt Turner going forward and to see if he can live up to this hype because he's certainly built up. Uh, a, a really strong reputation in, in two weeks and his legend is growing from uh, undrafted undrafted by the revolution and uh, you know didn't didn't play goalie until his uh, junior year of high school um, you know and, and now he's starting for the revs and, and doing quite quite well so uh, it's nice to have some stability at the goalkeeper position and of course uh, most famous for being number one in the top top 10 when he was at when he was at Fairfield up until now so i'm sure he's happy to erase those memories and i and i think you've had some uh, some more people jumping on your Matt Turner all-star bandwagon i was i was sitting next to to south from the bent musket at the game and we were discussing why there's no uh, why there's only three MLS matches this upcoming weekend, which doesn't make much sense to me, given uh, the international date is actually the following weekend. Uh, and, and we joke that, you know, maybe maybe they were thinking about having a week three all-star game. And if, and if they did, uh, Seth suggested that Matt Turner could be the goalkeeper. So uh, you're not you're not alone on that bandwagon now, Greg. No, no, no. His, his legend is growing. And uh, no, I'm really excited to see. Um, you know, where it goes. I'm very happy to have gotten out in front of the Matt Turner bandwagon. Uh, I'm really excited. He liked one of my tweets once, so we're kind of best friends, just saying. Uh, and, you know, Sean, I know we've had conversations, too, where, um, you know, Matt Turner, they picked up his options year after year. I think this is his third or fourth year with the team. And, you know, I, I remember saying, you know, a third-string goalkeeper, you can just replace them in the draft. And so, you know, previously it was, well, Jay Heap sees something in Matt Turner and they want to keep him as a long-term prospect. And when Heaps left and Friedel came in and they still maintained Matt Turner, I thought that there must be something about Matt Turner that is, um, you know, makes, makes him stand out from any uh, backup goalie that no one gave much thought about. Um, so, uh, it, it's nice to see that those suspicions have kind of come true and I don't know, I'm really excited. I'm all about the, uh, I'm all about Matt Turner. I'm going to have to get a Matt Turner Jersey. 
um, you know, future MLS All-Star and United States men's national team goalkeeper, Matt Turner. Really excited. <laughs> well, I mean, it's quite something to look at this team, you know, a few months ago and see Cody Cropper in the U.S. national team camp. Um, and as far as I'm aware, he was healthy for this game and wasn't even in the 18. So is, is Cropper now the, the third choice goalkeeper from the revolution, you know, after being in the U.S. national team camp? I, I think all of us um, thought, you know, there was room for improvement in his performances last year, but I, I don't think any of us would have expected to see um, Cropper be the, the number three guy at this point in the year. No, and I don't think, I, I think that with Friedel, I think a lot of his lineups in the beginning of the year has been about training and fitness levels. And I think for Cropper, if he's been sick the first few weeks, I'd imagine that he just hasn't been able to train as you normally could as a goalkeeper. And so even if he was over whatever sickness he had last week in, in Philadelphia, um, I'd imagine that Brad Knighton has just been training for the past few weeks and is probably a little more prepared than Cody Cropper at this point. So I can't imagine Cody Cropper is the number three um, going forward, but you never know. Brad Knighton still, you know, to his credit, is also a solid goalkeeper that could probably – get the job done between the posts. So it uh, may be possible that Cody Cropper is the number three goalkeeper, which is insane to say out loud. Yeah, that, I mean, nobody could have expected that. Uh, I want to touch upon the other end of the field. From My big takeaway, despite the win, is you know there's still so much uncertainty up top on this team. Teal Bunbury got the start instead of Aguadello on this one as the, the lone striker. I, I had kind of wanted to see that um, because it's a position that he's had a lot of success with um, in the past. But I didn't think he performed particularly well in this one. I, I know at the end of the game, I believe he was number one in, in times dispossessed with, with 12. Um, nobody else in the team was was anywhere near that. I think the next highest, um, I'm trying to pull it up, but I believe the next highest was Zahibo with, with three. So, you know, to me, that was not an, uh, the ideal performance that you want out of your, your starting striker. Um, and that, that was disappointing to, to see again because the Revolution just don't have that many options. As we talked about last week when, you know, I was trying to think about what position the Revs had the most uncertainty in and needed the most help in. Uh, to me, it's become even clearer that it actually is striker. Um, Aguadelo came on off the bench for you know seven minutes at the end and, and didn't do too much. Uh, Namath came on and actually played in the center. Um, when Aguadelo came on, he was put on the wing. Namath played 20 minutes, and we'll talk a bit about more about him later in the, the transfer rumors there, but uh, he didn't really have enough time to, to show what he's capable of. Um, so it, it, to me, that's a, a big question mark going forward because you don't have you know a guy like Kai Kamara who... Um, you expect to get 10-plus goals out of because that's what he's done in his MLS career. There's, there's nobody on this team like that, and that's something that's concerning for me uh, going forward. Um, the the other thing I wanted to talk about, though, is the, the few new guys that we saw on this one, a few more minutes um, than last games out of out of Christian Pania, who only got 25 minutes in the last game, and, and this time he, he uh, set up Diego Fagundes for the the first game, the first goal of the game with that nice pass. Uh, he played 83 minutes. And then we also saw a bit more out of Zahibo um, with, you know, the revolution playing with 11 men all game. So a, a better chance to observe him and, and get your thoughts there. Uh, Brian, what do you think of, of those two guys in this match? I thought, uh, I, well, it was nice to see, Z- it was nice to see uh, Nia for more than 26 minutes. So, um, and in the, in the time that we did see him, um, you know, he looks ambitious. He looks like your ambitious kind of, Casey, uh, you know, winger that, you know, really isn't afraid to take on defenders, which was, uh, which I think we saw one, I think there was one point late in the first half where I think he pretty much tried to take on all eight guys in front of the net. 
um, and really went nowhere. Tried to fire a shot, and it was just blocked, and that was the end of that. But, um, but you know, I think as he gets more comfortable with the guys around him, I think you'll start to see him make more of an impact. Um, you know, I didn't really hate what I saw from yesterday. It wasn't any kind of world-beating performance, but I think he, I think the, I think the attacking, the ambition is there, and I think that's really what they need. They need, they need speed and they need ambition from that spot, and I think he brought it. Um, and like I said, I think once he gets more comfortable, I think he'll, uh, you know, I think he'll, uh, you know, I think you'll start to see him. I think you'll start to see him make more of an impact. And uh, as far as the Hebo goes, I think, um, you know, he had a really like bad <laughs> first half. Um, he. You know, I, I forgot the stat. I know you had set the stat during the game, but I think his passing was sub thirty percent in the first half. I, I think uh, around the thirty-three minute mark or something, he was at thirty-six percent passing, and I, I believe by halftime he was at like forty-seven percent or something I see. like that. Yeah, and I—I I mean, maybe that's attributable to some of the conditions. Like I know, um, you know, like I was rewatching the broadcast uh, this afternoon, and you know, it did look windier than it did pro- probably from the press box, but it did. Uh, look like that. The wind was definitely a factor, so I'll give him some of that. Uh, I'll give him some of the benefit of the doubt because of that. Um, but it doesn't look like he's really. He hasn't quite gotten to the point where he's really starting to influence the way the midfield's played. And I think that, you know, that's that's a little worrisome early on because you know you're really not asking you're really not asking him to like truly like open up the offense. You're just asking him to stabilize the the midfield. And I really didn't think he did a very good job of that yesterday. Um, or, or in the game, you know, granted it was, uh, it was, it was, uh, 11 v 10, but during yesterday's game, I think he, he struggled to really make his mark. And so, um, you know, we'll see how it goes when the conditions start to, when it's not cold and windy in March in the Northeast, uh, maybe he'll get react. Maybe he'll, you know, similar to Pania, get more, more comfortable with the guys around him, more comfortable to the system. Um, but I think between the two, between him and Pania, I thought Pania made uh, made more of an impact, and I was more impressed by Pania. Yeah, and I agree. I think Pania, you can see he's going to be a dangerous weapon for the Rebs. Uh, you can see with Fagundes pushing into the center, uh, Pania is going to have an easy time. I shouldn't say an easy time, but um, he'll be able to control the pace of play down that left wing. Uh, it seems to me that in both games, in the Philly game and in um this recent game against Colorado, they worked really hard on pushing the ball down the left side of the field, um, particularly against Colorado since they weren't a man down. Um, and uh, I, I think Penny is playing really well. You can see he's kind of building up a, a rapport with uh, Fagundes. I was very encouraged with uh, his performance yesterday. With Zahibo, uh, you can kind of see why the Revs brought him in. You can see why his potential uh He's a big physical player, and you can certainly see him working out. But he what he, he didn't have the best of performances yesterday. Um, he seems to be very aggressive and kind of reckless. And um, you know, outside of drawing that uh, foul at the end of the game, which ended up being uh, leading to the free kick uh, that ended up being the game winner, I can't think of much he did yesterday that was very good. Um, he seems to want to always boot the ball downfield. He's always looking up in the attack. And uh, sometimes that just leads to turnover of possession. So um, overall, uh, I'm very pleased with Pania. I'm really excited about him. Zahibo, I think it'll take him another couple of games to uh, get in a rhythm, but I haven't given up on him yet. Yeah, and it, it, interesting to note that Pania actually led the team in shots with three, none of which are on target. Um, I think he was a bit ambitious at times trying to take on shots. Um, maybe some of that is a lack of trust in his teammates. 
but his his shooting wasn't the best. The the rest of his play was pretty good, and the the ability to set up Fagunas for that goal was great. The the other guy who actually led the team in shots, and I don't think we'll be too excited about his shooting ability from this game was was Brandon By, the rookie who got the start in this one, who also had three shots, none of which were on target, and some of which were were quite poor. Uh, but otherwise, his passing accuracy was seventy seven point eight percent, second best in the team, um, and and you know. Filled in admirably defensively in that role. Um, I, I'm curious, Greg, what your thoughts were on, on Brandon Bayan and, and his debut start. Yeah, you, you kind of filled it in perfectly there. Um, he seemed a bit aggressive. He seemed to take some shots when he just got the ball. I think being a forward in college, maybe that's just his natural instinct to see the goal and, and fire away. Um, but overall, he's adjusting to that right, posi- right back position very well. Um, it's really nice to have a guy on the in that wing back position who can cross the ball and go upfield and um, add to the offense, which I think uh, Andrew Farrell has um, kind of disappointed in in recent seasons. So uh, a, a promising start with by for by, um, but I think he needs to be a little more conservative with uh, shot selection and and uh, maybe maybe look to to pass the ball off to uh, a midfielder Rowe or Fagundes and and have them create something. I think with by uh, and I think you touched upon it a little bit, Greg, was the fact that you know they were using a lot. They were you know they were using a lot of like the left left flank rather than the right, and maybe that's just because they in the past years they really haven't gotten much from the right when uh, when you have uh, Andrew Farrell as as your overlapping fullback. But um, you know I think one thing one development that may come out of them drafting by is the fact that they may have to go a little bit more right side. They may have to kind of even out their offense a little bit more because of the fact that they do have that kind of player and by who can, um, you know, who look fairly sound defensively, but certainly has the attacking instincts to, um, to really make himself a threat down the right. So, um, you know, we did see that in the shots that he was taking. Granted, he wasn't, he didn't take the most accurate shots, but um, you did like to see in the opportunities that he did have at least making the effort to, uh, to you know, to, to throw himself into the attack. So hopefully, you know, We'll see more of that. We'll, you know, we'll see more more instances where the you know where we'll see a switch, and you know they have you have row on the right, and then you'll have the overlapping uh, by you know right after them, and you know maybe whipping in a few crosses here and there. But um, I think that'll be interesting to watch. Is the fact that now that they have a player like by, um, you know, what does that do for the rest of the offense? What does that do for them in terms of uh, you know maybe t- playing more on the right side of the field than they have in the past? So what do you think happens in two weeks when Andrew Frell's, um you know, available to play on the right again because Dale May and Dale are back available to play center back? I think we'll probably see Farrell again, um, but I think he's definitely on notice that um, similar to something that, you know, uh, Friedel said specifically about Matt Turner um, is that nobody's won. Nobody's won any job yet. Um, everything is still a fairly fluid situation. But I think this certainly sure shows serves notice to Farrell that you know maybe you're not as uh, your your job isn't as secure as it was at this time last year. So I think he'll still probably be the starting right back um, in two weeks versus NYCFC. But uh, that may not be the case, you know, during uh, you know once the uh, once the All Star once the All Star game of the midway point comes around. Yeah, and I agree. I think what they might do is. I think Farrell will be the first choice going forward, but I could also see them playing by in situations where they want to be more aggressive. Uh, I think he's probably a better offensive option than Farrell, 
Um, whereas Farrell, I think, is giving you more of someone kind of stable at the back. Um, looking at Brandon By, if you look at his um, his pass, where he he passed the ball, he had seven successful passes in the opposition's uh, half. He had seven successful passes in the final third of the field. So he's pushing up and he's he's joining the attack, which is something that I don't think Farrell can do. So I think when the Revolution want to play more aggressive, if they're going, if they're at home against a weaker opponent or someone they're trying to get three points on, uh, I could certainly see Brandon By getting the start over Farrell and then Farrell coming on if they're trying to hold a lead. Whereas if they're on the road facing NYCFC or Atlanta or someone and they need uh, a bit of a more stable defensive option, I think they'll go with Farrell. Yeah, and, and one more point I wanted to bring, which kind of brings back to my, my earlier point about the offense, is uh, the Revolution had 13 shots in this game. And over 90 minutes, Teal Bunbury and Christian Namath, who were their two strikers, recorded zero combined shots, um, which, which gets back to my, my questions about you know, who's going to be leading this offense going forward. Um, again, there's, there's two weeks to figure that out between now and, and New York City FC. I, I, Aguadello obviously didn't do enough to hold the spot this week. Um, I, I don't know that Bunbury did enough to hold the spot going into that game. Uh, and there's question marks around Namath that we have to discuss. But, you know, who, who do you think is going to be the striker uh, in, in two weeks' time? Uh, I think Juan Agudelo is going to be the starter going forward. Um, I think I I was very surprised that he only got to play the final 10 minutes yesterday. Um, But I I can't imagine Bunbury did many favors yesterday. I think maybe he just had a really good showing in Philadelphia and Friedel wanted to see how he could do in a starter's role. And and I I wasn't really impressed with Bunbury. I didn't think he created any chances or, or really contributed to the offense in a positive way. Uh, I still like Bunbury as someone coming off the bench, giving you a little bit of speed at the end of the game. Um, I think Juan Aguadello is the guy that should be starting up top going forward. I think that's the obvious answer. Uh, I know he didn't have the best of games in Philadelphia, but um, I I think he's probably the most talented forward you have at this point. I'm also going to say it's probably going to be Aguadello. And I'll I'll just play devil's advocate here by saying that maybe the reason why Aguadello wasn't uh, starting wasn't starting yesterday was not so much because of his play in Philadelphia, but maybe because it was of the conditions. Um, you know, the one the one game I always that I always kind of think about uh, that kind of I guess is that I guess basically defines your typical early to mid March uh, game in Foxborough is the game that they played versus uh, Sporting Kansas City a few years ago, where it was um, uh, where it was like a zero it was a zero zero game. And basically, there were no, there were like no chances. And I just remember that being that game, just not being the kind of game where like a kind of a player like Juan Aguadel would thrive. So I would say that uh, I would probably say that it would probably be like that. The conditions for yesterday's game probably weren't suited for his, for the way that not only of his skill set, but also for the way that the Revs probably want to play with him on the field. Um, because I could kind of sense that based based on the way that Colorado was playing. They're playing basically eight guys in front of the net, and there's really not that 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 kind of situation doesn't really you know benefit a guy like Agudelo's skill set or what he brings to the table. So I think that really all Friedel was going for was having you know you were having you know Bunbury just play play the high press play um, and just try and you know press the uh, press their backs and press their midfielders, and that's not really Juan's you know. Juan's game. Juan is really more of a, obviously more of a creator, and I think it was just more of a matchup issue more than anything else. So um, I think once it's not so windy at Gillette, and once it's not, you know, the conditions aren't like they are in early spring here in New England, um, I think you'll start to see Agadell 
be be a starter more often than not. So, so I, I have one last discussion point on this game before I want to move on to the other news of this week, uh, and that's again the discipline of the back line, which you touched upon last week. Um, you know, there's been four, two games now, four different center backs that have played, and combined they have two red cards and a penalty kick conceded. Is it, is it too soon to start panicking about discipline of these center backs? What do you think, Brian? I don't. I, I think it might be a little early, just because. Um, you know, it was kind of like uh, you know, you looked at the you looked at the game plan for um, Philadelphia, and it was really like the you know they were playing kind of like a high press, high line, and um, you know you saw Delme get essentially get burned because of that because he was he was too far up the field. Um, so for him to get the red card, I mean, it was kind of like a last stitch. You know, he wasn't being malicious; he was just completely caught up out of position. I don't think it was uh, you know him being reckless; it was just him. You know, panicking, and that's what, and he panicked himself into a red card. Um, the so I don't think that's too much of an issue, uh, you know, for him, but possibly for Dielma in the sense that, um, you know, you're already on a yellow, uh, and you're playing in a game where, you know, the game, regardless of the fact of that you're you're down a man, it's still one nothing at that point. I think it was when when uh, when he got his second yellow. So I mean. You know, just the fact that the situ- the lack of situational awareness on Dielmo's part is a little is a little troubling. Um, but I think that you know possibly as the game as as the season extends into you know late spring and early summer, I I think it will resolve itself. Um, I still think it's a little early at this point. So the, the other points I wanted to get into today before we we end the show are there's there's still some questions with this Revolution roster and it's still in flux. Um, as we know, we talked about Lee Wynn last week and then the news this week came up that Christian Namath was apparently being shopped around uh by the revolution and you know talking about the striker situation earlier that's an area where the revs don't have um much good depth as far as guys that have actually put the ball in the back of the net you know double figures in MLS uh, what are your thoughts on this Namath news that came out it seems like they've been doing some damage control since with with you know Brad Friedel talking about how good he thinks Namath actually is yeah, I mean, it makes a little more sense uh, shedding light on the Lee Win situation too. If they want to move Nemeth and Win, they probably want to shop Nemeth first and see what they can get with that route. If if people know Lee Win is available and uh, and Nemeth are both available at the same time, a lot more people are going to be interested in Lee Win, uh, in my opinion. Nemeth is making a million dollars according to that report, whereas Lee Win's still only at half a million dollars. So teams are going to get a lot more value trading for Lee Win. Um, so, uh, I, I think his appearance on Saturday was there to kind of add some trade value. They were kind of hoping for a spark. I think that's why he came on first instead of Agadello. Um, uh, the, the rumors don't really surprise me. He's not in the starting 11 and he's one of your top paid players. So it makes a lot of sense that they're shopping him around. I think Kansas city is a good fit since they were interested in him last year and he's previously played there. Um, so uh, it's smart for the Revs to make phone calls, um, although the report made it sound like they're really looking to ship him out of town, which I don't know if that's 100% the right call with the questions at forward like we've been talking about. Um, but either way, I think this is just a, a highly priced player that Friedel clearly is not fond of through two starting lineups. And uh, I don't know. I, I'm not sure if he's got a spot on the team going forward. I think even like last year, he really didn't establish himself at all last year. So I think, I think it even goes back. It even goes back further than even you know Friedel taking over. Like, I I think that I think I I think there were like a lot of expectations for him making a more of an impact than the than the kind of impact he made last year after he was acquired. 
Um, I remember, if I could be remembering it wrong, but I think it took him like two or three weeks before he was really ready. And then even when he was ready, he was primarily a substitute. Um, and then, of course, there was the game in sporting at, at Kansas City where he, you know, red carded himself out of game for elbowing for elbowing Graham Zussi in the face. So it just seemed like he was just a bad fit. I mean, on paper, it looked like a great move. Um, but, you know, once he started training and once he started playing, I think it became quickly apparent that he just really wasn't fitting into the system, fitting into the group. And then when Friedel took over, it, it was even more glaring now that they're talking about, uh, you know, an urgency to move him. So um, it was just uh, it was just one. Of the, I just think that he was he was a guy that they brought in with a lot of expectations and a lot of people, a lot of the fans had expectations for him. And he just didn't didn't even come close to meeting those expectations. So I think that, you know, if there's a market for him, by all means, um, you know, now's the time to now's the time to trade him. So you can start stacking other, uh, stacking other pieces, and maybe bring in somebody else to take, to to bring to to do what he was supposed to do when they acquired him last summer. Yeah, and you talk about uh, if there's a market for him. You mentioned he's kind of disappointed since returning back to MLS, and even last year, before the addition of Pania and the other people in the midfield, you know there he didn't seem to have a, a starter job locked down. So I wonder how much of a marker market there is for him at this point. Um, I think Kamara was traded for just a draft pick, right? I don't think there was any allocation money that was sent back to the revolution. Correct. Um, uh, fact check. Do you guys remember off the top of your head? That sounds right to me off the top of my head, but I, I will confirm as you continue. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I mean, my point is if you're only getting a first round pick for Kai Kamara, who was also around a similar salary to Namath, I don't know what the market is for trade value wise for Namath. It, it might be a second or third round draft pick, which is essentially nothing. So, I mean, maybe the revs are, are making phone calls, shopping around, seeing if they can get anything and they're not really happy with the returns and they'll, they'll bring him off the bench and they'll see if he can get a goal here or there. And maybe someone will, you know, have an injury and, and offer to pay up some allocation money. But I, I can't imagine there's a huge market for him at this point. And you're right. It was just a first round draft pick and a right. conditional 2020 second round draft pick. So not, oh, well. <laughs> not, and as, as we know, the worth of draft picks has decreased greatly over the past few years. The only point I'd say there is that Namath is four years younger than, than Kai Kamara. So at least he's got, uh, you know, a bit more time left in his prime where, where Kai Kamara age wise would seem to be on the, the downside of that. Um, but it may, and maybe I'm being harsh here, but you know, looking back now in hindsight's 2020, they, they made the move for Namath back in August when they, you know, I think it was pretty clear to all of us that Jay Heaps, you know, barring something special was not going to be the coach the next year. Um, and, and in doing so they traded 400,000 in allocation money to get, the, to get Namath from Columbus. And then apparently, you know, from that, that article, they're paying, name with something like a million dollars this year against the cap. Uh, and in doing so, they're really tying the hands of, you know, the new coach, Brad Friedel, or whoever the new coach was going to be. Um, you know, looking back, was was that a mistake? And, you know, hindsight's 2020, but was was a, a dumb move over the revolution to commit so much to a guy that, you know, A, didn't, as we discussed, have an immediate starting spot based on, you know, who was on this team, and B, is taking up so much space and, and, and making less options available for the new coach coming in. I mean, I personally think it was a panic move. Um, I think it was more so uh, the thought process being, hey, we need to make a move, otherwise, you know, we're not going to make the playoffs. And I think that might have been the mindset in the front office is that this this is ha- this is sinking very quickly. We need to come in and bring in somebody to uh, to shore up the attack because 
as we all saw last year, their defense was not going to get them to the playoffs. So they probably looked up, looked up top, looked at the attack and said, and probably thought of how they can bolster the attack. They had name at the, in a, they had a, they were in a position to acquire a proven, a proven talent, a, a player who had proven himself in MLS um, in Namath and said, Hey, we need to pull the trigger on this guy um, in order to, uh, in order to um, get, get more from the attack. Um, and I think that's probably what the mindset was. Um, it was, it kind of reminded me a little bit of when they traded for Juan Agadello early in the 2013 season, where they identified the fact they identified that their attack really wasn't going anywhere. I remember that was the same year where they, I believe they had Jerry Benson and Chad Barrett as two of their strikers and they really weren't getting anything from either one of them. So the idea of them bringing in Agadello made a lot of sense. Um, and they were able to get him and he did make, he did make an impact on that season. Um, and I think that's the, the same the same mindset was there when they acquired Namath is that we need to really do something about our attack to get us to get us over the hump and to get us into the playoffs. And I don't and obviously as we all saw it, it just didn't it you know Namath did not even come close to making the same impact that Agudelo did in 2013. I, I was going to just quickly say uh, in terms of whether or not that signing was a mistake. I mean it, it, hindsight's 2020 on this signing and he, he clearly hasn't fit in so. Uh, it's hard to say that at this point, if you could have a do-over, you you definitely do it. But I think what's strange is that we did kind of know that Jay Heaps was on his way out. It seemed like it was his last season. Um, and and I find it interesting that we uh, they committed so much money, not just to him, but also they brought in uh, Claude Dielna last year uh, at a massive salary. And um, that's another big piece uh, that, going forward, it gave the Revs a little bit less flexibility in the offseason in terms of signings that a new manager would want. So uh, I think Brian's absolutely right that they were really trying to uh, go for it and um, bring in some players to get a, a last push towards the playoffs um, in 20, uh, 2015, two seasons ago, when they traded Charlie Davies and they didn't really make any other moves to increase their lineup. And then they, they missed out on the playoffs by a few points. I think that really kind of haunted them and they wanted to see if they could uh, squeak into the playoffs and make one push in the postseason. Um, and you know, that, that gamble didn't really work out, but you, you certainly can't blame them for trying, I guess, but it, it certainly created quite a mess for now. So, so the last topic I want to get to before we wrap up the show is the, the signing the revolution made this week, Luis Alberto Casado, uh, defensive midfielder, only five foot seven. So another, you know, undersized guy for that position, similar, similar size to Scott Caldwell. Um, uh, from what we hear, he's more physical than Scott Caldwell, but he's played most of his time, uh, in Columbia for the, the second tier team there at times that team was in the first tier. Um, but they used Tam to get him and it, it seems he's, it's a loan for one season with an option to buy after one year. Um, but you know, based on the salary they're paying him, I, I would think they have high hopes that he has a chance to push for, for playing time with, with Scott Caldwell and, and Zahibo as the two guys that he'd be competing with. Uh, Brian, do you have any insight onto to what we should expect from Casido? Um, yeah, I mean, from what I've seen, uh, you know, I did the old Google, the old YouTube search on him to see, you know, what, to see some video of, you know, what, what kind of style he plays and what he brings to the table. And, uh, you know, the first thing that I kind of noticed is that he takes on a lot of players, uh, on the dribble, uh, definitely seems to be like one of those six slash eight kind of players, uh, number six, number eight players, uh, kind of a box to box kind of guy. Um, Kind of obviously small. He's I think he's listed at five seven. It kind of does remind me a little bit of a of a of a uh, Xavier Kwasi kind of player where he's not really going to win many balls in the air. He's not really going to you know be a you know uh, a defensive midfielder in the Shabri Joseph type mold. 
Um, but you know, it looks like he's somebody who could who could possibly you know strengthen the midfield somewhat, um, just based upon uh, you know his ability to uh, to you know his ambition to kind of create opportunities and uh, and not being afraid to track back and not really uh, being afraid to put in the work to uh, to to go ninety minutes uh, and doing doing a lot of running, which I guess kind of goes back to uh, to Friedel's point of really wanting a team that is uh, you know well conditioned and. And uh, and fit in order to um, in order to uh, in order to get to, in order to find success, um, which seems to be the way that Friedel wants to do it. Um, so he seems like the kind of player that Friedel likes. Um, and you know, I guess we'll find out more about him once he starts. Once we see him on the field. Yeah, I'm excited to see him. And as you mentioned with Zahibo earlier in this the show, I think there's an opportunity there to, you know, if Zahibo doesn't improve in the next few games, there's an opportunity there for for Casado if he. You know, shows up in training and does well to to maybe get some minutes. Um, but before I wrap the show, I, I wanted to touch on one, or at least give a shout out to one non-Rev story, and that's Atlanta United with their game today, setting an MLS record with seventy-two thousand and thirty-five fans showing up. And you know, I, I, in the past, I've talked a lot about expansion and, and expanding too fast that. You know, MLS might be doing that, but they sure hit a home run with Atlanta from what we've seen last year and this year. Um, and it, you know how impressive is that to see uh, an MLS team in their second season start off with seventy-two thousand fans at their at their home opener? I never, I, I honestly, Sean, I I never thought that Atlanta would ever pull in those kind of numbers, and it's a huge, huge credit to them. Um, they really, you know, I think the the standard the standard bearer before they came to the league, had to have been Seattle. Seattle had just done everything right, right out of the gate. They had, you know, sold out, uh, you know, they had drawn like forty to 50,000 to their uh, fans, to their games up in uh, up at uh, CenturyLink. And really, they were kind of like the model of, this is how you expand into MLS. This is how, this is exactly how you do it. They basically wrote the textbook. Well, now Atlanta United has basically rewritten the textbook. And to see them have that kind of, to see them make that kind of impact in a city that has a football team and has a baseball team and has a basketball team and there's still all this passion for the soccer team, it's just remarkable. I mean, they've just done everything right. And um, they've obviously rewarded their fans by bringing in quality players and bringing, a, obviously, a quality a quality coach into Ta. So um, it's just a really, a really great setup. And what they've got there is really, really encouraging to see um and then you just hope that uh you know the next the next expansion sites that come into the league you know the miamis um and they when they come into the league is that they'll just uh you know they'll take it up to the next level yeah and i just want to add on i want to do uh, another shout out on top of atlanta but uh how hyped are we for the first place columbus crew uh i think that'd be an amazing story if they turn out to have a great season after all the stuff that their owner has done trying to get them out of columbus uh it's hard not to root for those guys and, and hopefully the the first two weeks aren't a fluke yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm eating crow on the crew so far because on another show I predicted them to be one of the worst teams in the league this year with the moves they made. So uh, it's it's early yet, but I'm I'm shocked by how good they've been um, given the key players that they lost this off season. And this was Revolution Recap. Uh, Sean Donahue hosting with Brian O'Connell and Greg Johnstone. Thanks again for for joining us. Uh, the Revolution are off next weekend. 
um, and then again return home to face New York City FC in two weeks. Uh, hopefully there's some news this upcoming week that's worth having another podcast next weekend. We'll, we'll play that by air to decide whether or not um, it's worth doing one, but it, it would be nice to. And there's been rumors that the Revolution are going to sign somebody else soon too. So perhaps that'll come in this upcoming week. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, as we mentioned last week, we're still working on getting the website and everything up to, to full capacity and where we want it to be at, at the time being where we're posting these shows in, in two different locations and eventually we want it to just be one. Um, but thanks for sticking with us. And I, I consider this somewhat of a, of a soft launch with the eventual hard launch of getting everything where we want it to be. Um, this is week two of Revolution Recap. Thanks again.